Good afternoon. Hello. Welcome back. So this is part two of the talk we started this morning about consequential libertarianism. So just to refresh your memory, um, consequential libertarianism says we choose policies based on their consequences, taking into account all the effects that different policy choices might have, positive or negative, tangible, intangible, easy to measure, hard to measure, and so on. Okay? Now, at some level, everyone agrees with that, and yet there are huge differences of opinion over what policies we should adopt. So the question is why, and as we discussed, there are two main possibilities as to why people disagree on the correct policy choices, even if they agree with this approach. They might have different assessment of what the consequences will be. There's always going to be some of that, basic scientific uncertainty, okay, difficulty of drawing conclusions about non-experimental situations, which is what happens in social science. And they also might have very different weights or very different valuations that they attach to different outcomes. Some people might inherently think that soaking the rich is a good thing just because they think it's a good thing. They hate the rich, and other people don't share that. Okay, so given all that, the question is, you know, how can we come to any conclusions? What I want to argue this afternoon is two things that were previewed earlier. First is that most interventions have a range of bad consequences. Partially, they don't do the things that they were designed to do, or they don't do it very much or very effectively. Okay? Second, in addition to whatever effect these policies have on their primary targets, on the thing they were set up to uh, address, okay, they have lots of unintended consequences, generally bad. Of course, an unintended consequence could sometimes be beneficial, okay? but mainly they're bad. And I'm going to argue that these failures and these unintended consequences are, generally speaking, inevitable. It's not just that we haven't yet been clever enough to design exactly the right set of tax rates within a welfare policy that get people to uh, work hard while still getting subsidized and all that. It's not just a technical matter, that there are fundamentally inherent properties of interventions which lead to things which most people would find undesirable uh, side effects. Second, I want to argue that the differences in people's values about whether you care about redistribution versus efficiency, maximizing the size of the pie versus deciding how the pie gets divided up, that that's actually not so crucial. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it's not as crucial as it might seem that whether you think the goal of policy should be simple economic efficiency, maximum output per person, or something like that, or you think the goal of policy should be to maximize liberty and freedom, or you think the goal of policy should be some notion of equity. I'll mainly focus on uh, redistributing income, because that's what most people seem to be talking about in this context. Regardless of which of those things you think we should be focusing on, you should still conclude that small government is best based on looking at all the consequences. So here's the outline. We'll mainly be talking about the consequences of interventions. That's the bulk of the talk. I'll very briefly talk about how to think about efficiency versus liberty as an appropriate goal for what policy is trying to achieve, okay? and then talk in a little bit more detail about efficiency slash liberty versus equity, and try to argue that, in fact, it's not that there's a big trade-off that you can have one or the other. In fact, for the most part, more efficient, more freedom-loving policies also tend to be more equitable. Okay, so the first point is simply that lots of interventions do not accomplish, or at least not to a substantial degree, their stated goals. 
And if that's the case, we don't really have to argue about what the goals are, whether they're good or bad, whether there are lots of other unintended consequences. If they're just not doing what they claim they're doing and they have even any costs at all, of course, those interventions don't make a lot of sense. And I want to give you some examples just to try to uh, show you that that's sort of frequently the case. Okay, it's not a proof that it's always the case, but it's certainly meant to be suggested. So these are data on um, two things. The uh, red line is the homicide rate in the United States, the number of homicides per 100,000 people each year since 1980. And the blue line okay, is the percentage of the population that was living in a concealed carry state, that is a state where the right to carry a concealed handgun or other gun okay, was legal okay, in year by year. So what you can see is that the percentage of the population living in a concealed carry state has gone up and is getting very close to okay, the whole population. Okay? People who oppose concealed carry laws okay, said that these laws would lead to blood on the street, to huge outbursts of violence, and so on and so forth. They really predicted incredibly dire consequences. Over the period during which these laws have expanded, where the right to carry concealed has done nothing but go up, Okay, the homicide rate has mainly done nothing but go down. So that's a case where the policy, that the policy of preventing concealed carry was supposed to be okay, keeping us safer. In fact, if anything, it looks exactly the opposite. The policy just didn't do anything like what it was supposed to do. Okay? This graph has, in the blue line, uh, motor vehicle fatalities, motor vehicle accidents, Okay, per 100,000, per 100 million people, uh, sorry, per 100 million vehicle miles traveled. And you can see that starting in about the mid-1960s, highway safety just gets better and better and better. The number of uh, fatalities on the roads just keeps going down and down and down with a few sort of little bumps here and there. Okay? The orange line is the percentage of the population living in a state that had a 21-year-old drinking age. So the history is that many states, going back before the mid-1980s, okay, had varying drinking ages, minimum legal drinking ages. Many were 18, some were 21, a few were something else. Then in the mid-1980s, our so-called freedom-loving uh, President Ronald Reagan okay, signed into law the Federal Uniform Drinking Age Act, which required all states to raise their minimum drinking ages to 21 as a condition of getting their federal highway funding. So you can see that after that case, that uh, law went to the Supreme Court, the famous court case, case called South Dakota v. Dole. Dole was Elizabeth Dole, the Secretary of Transportation, wife of Robert Dole, former presidential candidate. After it went to the Supreme Court, okay, every single state raised its minimum legal drinking age from 18 or 19 up to 21. Okay, and so that's why the line is solid at the top for this roughly the second half of the graph. Again, there's no correlation. The notion that having a different minimum legal drinking age would have any effect okay, on traffic fatalities is completely belied okay, by that graph. Okay, at the same time, if the minimum legal drinking age, of course, is having some effects okay, of preventing people who can drink responsibly between ages 18 and 20 uh, from so doing. So again, zero effectiveness, okay, apparently, of this law. Here's another example. Uh, this is life expectancy at birth in the US from 1900 to approximately the present. Setting aside a 1918, who knows what happened in 1918? It was actually two things. It was World War I and it was the Spanish flu. And actually, the Spanish flu worldwide was much worse than World War I. It was 50 million people. But for the US, for sort of similar magnitudes, they combined to give us that huge downward spike in the early part. But other than that, 
That's basically a straight line. Okay? The three different lines are the total male and female. Okay? So the claim that Medicare and Medicaid, which were adopted in 1965, were essential to promoting the health of the US population gets zero support okay, from that graph because life expectancy had been going up for roughly 70 years before Medicare came along, and it keeps on going up at about the same rate after Medicare comes along. So again, that policy seems to have had no effect. And more rigorous examinations of that particular issue okay, tell exactly the same story. Along similar lines, this is infant mortality at birth. One of the arguments for Medicaid, which is health insurance, government subsidized health insurance for low-income households and particularly for uh, mothers, okay, would be that it was good for the health of infants and avoiding infant mortality. And yet, infant mortality rates came down enormously before Medicaid was introduced in 1965. And there's no obvious change in the rate at which it continues to come down after 1965. Again, zero, you know, evidence of this kind for any effectiveness of the Medicaid program, at least on this outcome. Okay. Still one more. This is a graph put together by Andrew Colson, who uh, unfortunately passed away in the past year, but was a, a very uh, distinguished education scholar at Cato. He shows you in the uh, blue line at the top the total expenditure okay, per pupil in the US on K through 12 education from 1970 to 2012. Okay, so it goes up and up and up and up. It goes up by roughly 200% over those four decades. Okay? The lines at the bottom, dash lines, the dotted lines, all that stuff, those are scores on standardized tests. We've more than doubled, tripled, the amount of education spending per pupil. It's impossible to see any impact okay, in the test scores. So again, okay, the policies just don't do what they're supposed to do. And I've just given you here simple basic correlations, first-order evidence. I've only done it for a few policies. But if you go extensively through the effectiveness of various policies that governments undertake routinely, you'll get a similar story. It's much, much harder to find any systematic evidence that they do what they say they're going to do than you would think. And that, of course, creates a prima facie presumption that maybe they're not such a great idea. Now, in other cases, of course, some policies are going to have some effect on their desired things desired goals, excuse me, but they're going to have these unintended consequences. And even the ones that have no effect on their desired goals will have these unintended consequences. So I want to talk about those in several different categories. Um, tax distortions, preventing Pareto improving exchange, expanding too much, disrespect for the law, polarization, reduced self-alliance, and thought control. And I've created these categories to capture the idea that there are certain fundamental features, characteristics of interventions that by the very nature of intervening, you are likely to generate several different kinds of adverse consequences. Okay? And therefore, there's again this presumption that anytime you intervene, you should be very uh, aware of the strong possibility of such effects. So taxes is the simplest one, the most conventional one. That's really fairly straightforward. Almost all interventions are going to require some expenditure, and that means you have to raise taxes to pay for that expenditure. Taxation distorts economic efficiency. It changes the relative prices of different goods and services in the economy in a way that does not correspond to their relative valuation by consumers or businesses or their relative production cost. It introduces an artificial wedge between their value and their cost, and that reduces the overall size of the economic pie. In addition, complicated tax systems, such as the one 
that we and most countries have, have huge compliance costs, people spending hours and weeks and, and everything trying just to fill out their tax form, that's another cost of the taxation. So just to give very basic examples, taxes on specific goods distort people's decisions about which of those goods they should purchase. Taxes on income discourage people from working as hard as they otherwise might. Taxes on business income encourage businesses to locate in places that are less productive but have lower tax rates. That's also bad for economic efficiency. Okay? And how big are these effects? Okay? If tax rates are very low, those effects tend to be low. That's a standard theorem in economics. Okay? As the tax rates get high, the distortions get much higher. Okay? And calculations that economists have done suggest the US is in a range where those effects are quite substantial. Second category of negatives, of unintended consequences of intervention, are preventing Pareto improving exchanges. So Pareto improving means that something helps one person without hurting anybody else. Okay? So that when two people voluntarily trade, at least one of them must believe that he or she was better off, otherwise the trade would never have occurred. Okay? That's an example of Pareto improvement. Okay? So the reasonable assumption is that any voluntary exchange is Pareto improving, otherwise it have not occurred. But tons of policies are therefore reducing efficiency by this criterion because they interfere with voluntary actions that people want to take in various settings. So they're making somebody worse off without helping anyone else. So there are billions of examples. Okay, I won't go through every single one, but it's useful to review a few because it illustrates the general principles. So vice prohibitions against drugs, against prostitution, against gambling, and so on and so forth. The people who are engaged in those transactions want to engage in those transactions. The drug seller wanted to sell you the crack cocaine. You wanted to buy the crack cocaine. So if there's a law that prevents you from doing that, you're both worse off. Or at least you, know, you can tell stories about why the people doing that were confused, they were addicted, they didn't really want to be in that business. But that's mainly a lot of hoo-ha. Basically, you're telling two people who want to engage in some voluntary transaction they can't do it. Okay, so that's a negative of vice prohibitions. Okay? Occupational safety and health regulation okay, is telling restaurants, excuse me, is telling businesses who might want to hire an employee to do a really dangerous job. You know, paint the outside windows at the top, uh, clean the outside windows at the top of the Empire State Building or something. That OSHA is not allowed to just let that person do that in some way that's fairly inexpensive. It has to do it in some more complicated way that has more safety precautions even if there are people who are willing to do it for whatever wage was offered without all those safety precautions. So that means fewer of those people might get hired. Okay? So the regulation is preventing a Pareto-improving agreement between the employer who wants to hire the window washer and the person who wants to work as a window washer. Collective bargaining laws okay, prevent employers from hiring people okay, who want to work for them at below the union wage, or who want to just fire their union and say, we want to hire these other people. Okay? Collective bargaining laws in many countries, and sort of in the United States, prevent that. Okay? That, again, is preventing Pareto improving exchange of voluntary agreement between employers and non-union workers. Price controls is very obvious. You might want to sell something to somebody at a high price. If the government bans you from raising your prices, it's prevented mutually beneficial exchange. Antitrust laws are preventing two companies that want to merge from so doing, again, preventing voluntary interaction. Now, the mere fact in this set of examples and a bunch of the others that there are these negative effects, you should remember, doesn't mean that we've done the whole analysis. So maybe you think antitrust laws 
okay, are a good idea overall because they help make the world more competitive. But you should recognize that part of what they do is prevent this mutually beneficial interaction, and that should be taken account of okay, in evaluating them overall. So gun controls would be similar to things we've discussed already. Um, entry barriers, very similarly. Child labor law is a good example. When my son was 13 or 14, he wanted to work after school at the ice cream store down the street, okay? but he couldn't do that. Okay? The employer wanted, the guy who runs the ice cream store wanted to hire him, but he couldn't do that. Why? Because there are child labor laws in Massachusetts that say if you're under a certain age, you can't be working okay, outside the home unless you're above that age. And so even with parents' endorsement, the child's endorsement, and the employer's endorsement, that was not allowed to occur. Now, maybe you can still tell stories about why child labor laws are beneficial overall, but they are preventing some mutually beneficial interactions from occurring, and that's a cost. Campaign finance regulation, for preventing people from donating to candidates of their choice and the candidates from receiving it. Compulsory education is making people go to school who don't want to go to school, okay? And that, again, is preventing voluntary decisions from taking effect. Zoning is similar, and so on. Okay, so that's one category. Preventing Pareto Improving Exchange. Another category is that policies systematically breed disrespect for the law. Why? Because most government can be evaded or avoided at relatively low cost. Enforcement is imperfect and costly and hard to do. So tons of people break the laws, and the people who obey the laws therefore lose out to the people who are willing to break the laws. The honest suffer relative to the dishonest. People learn that laws are for suckers, and so they you know, either are frustrated and annoyed, or maybe they're incentivized to break the law themselves. By having all these laws that can't be well enforced, you create this view that rules are made to be broken, rather than fostering the attitude that we have a society of laws and rules that everybody obeys because they're small enough and sensible enough that everybody accepts that these are good rules. So what are examples? <clears throat> Again, any prohibition against vice, use that example a lot because that's my area of expertise, so it's my pet peeve, but if you try to outlaw drugs, and zillions of people are consuming and selling and making lots of money, buying and selling drugs anyway, people who observe that realize, gee, why should I bother to obey the laws that I don't like? Why don't I just go cheat on my taxes and get away with that, like these other people are smoking marijuana illegally and getting away with that, okay? Speed limits which might be a sensible thing overall, nevertheless do have the effect that whenever the vast majority of people who are driving on the highway are going above the speed limit, they start to think, gee, you know, maybe rules are not perfect. Maybe we should ignore the rules that we don't like because the government isn't setting the rules in a reasonable way. Safety and health regulation, it has a similar effect because it's widely avoided, evaded. I guarantee you if you went back inside the kitchen at most restaurants in any city, you'd be horrified. Okay, you would never eat in a restaurant again. And yet, okay, you don't die every time you go to a restaurant. Why? Because they cook the food. They kill all the other junk that's back there in the kitchen. And so mostly you're okay. But the restaurants that evade the regulation, okay, get away with it, or they, pay, they bribe the inspectors and things, that again breeds contempt for the law. Minimum wage laws and rent controls, we discussed a little, same sort of thing. Affirmative action, there's multiple scope for employers or whomever to engage in tokenism or to engage in hiring that looks as though it's complying with the affirmative action but is only doing so in a superficial way. So again, it breeds this, this attitude of evasion and avoidance and breaking the rules to the extent that you're able. 
any kind of licensing, permits, and entry fees, again, the same thing. You have to have a license to braid hair, you have a permit to be a plumber, on and on and on. So everybody sees that and realizes that's sort of silly and makes people want to go ahead and do it anyway, uh, again, breeding this contempt for the law. High tax rates and complicated tax codes are, of course, an extreme example. People, even who want to be compliant, get fed up and frustrated and can't do what the law is trying to tell them they're supposed to figure out how to do, and so they just go on uh, to other things. Campaign finance regulation is an extreme example of that. All of these things imply that one version of equity, of having the honest people be the winners, the honest people, the ones who are rewarded, and the dishonest people be the ones who get punished, are going to be much worse under big government. Because under big government, there's all this scope for the dishonest to get ahead by avoiding and evading the laws they don't like. Okay? That's exactly the opposite of anyone who advocates equity would want to happen. Another kind of general effect is that interventions tend to polarize. Okay? We certainly heard a lot about polarization in the last uh, you know, decade or so, and especially the last year, and we're going to hear a lot more about it for the next three months. Okay? Um, interventions push everyone to behaving a particular way okay, or to thinking that they have to hold a particular perspective, but reasonable people hold a big range of views that are defensible from lots of perspectives. So if you impose one view, you force people into activities they don't approve of, Okay? You force people to accept conditions that they don't like, okay? and that's going to potentially have serious negative effects on social harmony. There's a typo on that slide. I apologize. The word disagreeable down there somehow should have been gone. Um, and that's going to apply. This is something that applies particularly when we're talking about federal policies. Why? Because those are imposing the same thing on everyone throughout a country. So again, let's look at examples. Affirmative action. Okay, is trying to enforce private parties engaging hiring practices that many of them don't want to engage in. And by so doing, it's going to force them into decisions that they are, feel awkward about into accepting a perspective on discrimination that they may not like. And that's, it's also going to create the appearance okay, of people who are getting jobs that they quote unquote don't deserve. I'm not saying they don't deserve them. I'm saying it creates that appearance in the minds of some people. Okay? And that's going to lead to people being angry and upset. That's exactly the kind of thing that fosters a Donald Trump. When lots of people think that the system has been systematically imposing things on them that weren't fair, okay, and therefore they react by going to extremes. Okay? That's one way in which I think the Democrats, the liberals, have to bear responsibility for Trump not just the Republicans. Democrats have endorsed policies like affirmative action that, lead, that contribute to the polarization that we observe. Public schools is a great example. Okay? And they're not even federal. They're, they're state and local. Public schools teach everybody the same thing. They tend to teach everybody in the classes that there are certain right ways and wrong ways of thinking. Okay? For example, wife and I, when we had our first child, we were trying to find a good preschool. I happen to be Jewish. My wife happens to be not Jewish. But it turned out that one of the allegedly best preschools was in the local synagogue. And we went there, and we looked around. And they assured us over and over and over again that most of the kids were from quote unquote mixed marriages like mine, that there was no preaching, there was no indoctrination, that you had to be Jewish or anything like that. And we should feel completely comfortable with that. And we both did, except that as part of the tour, we also heard them tell us how much they preached to the kids okay, 
that environmentalism was next to godliness, okay? And not the most stupid, idiotic versions of being pro-environment, okay? And that, that actually was a private preschool, but that happens in public schools. And that gets people angry. That gets them frustrated. They're being forced to accept ideas that they don't like. That contributes to the polarization and the incivility uh, that we observe in US society. Abortion is an interesting example. Again, whether you come down as pro-choice or pro-life, when the Supreme Court ruled okay, that states could not outlaw abortion, that was in Roe v. Wade in 1974, subsequently upheld in a decision called uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Okay? Again, whether the constitutional decision is right or wrong, as a matter of public policy, by having one abortion policy imposed by the federal government over every state, it meant that everybody, no matter what your view, had to accept that that was the policy. Imagine the contrast that we just went along with what was happening before Roe v. Wade. That is, five states had already fully legalized abortion on demand, including California and New York, two of the biggest states. Lots of people lived in states that neighbored on those two states, plus the other three, which were much smaller. Um, and so people had legal access to abortion from a bunch of other states. And clearly a bunch more were on the path to legalizing abortion. So had there been no federal intervention, you would observe the situation in which lots of states would have legalized abortion. Some would have done it only partially. Some might have retained significant prohibitions. Okay? So is that perfect from the perspective of either the pro-life or the pro-choice uh, movement? No. Okay? The pro-choice people say that's unacceptable. It has to be totally legal everywhere. The pro-life people would have been very unhappy because it would have been legal in large fraction of the US. But from the perspective of social harmony, I believe it would have been a much better outcome because most people would have been able to say, if I really don't like my state's abortion policy, I can go somewhere else. If my state is adopting an abortion policy, it's at least people who live in my state, who are near me, who have some understanding of what it means to be a Texan or a Pennsylvanian or whatever. It's not the federal government imposing something from on high. And therefore, we would have had less controversy and more civil society and been able to argue about more constructive things uh, had Roe v. Wade not pushed that on the entire country. Now, gay marriage is an, an interesting contrast okay, because, in fact, gay marriage was on a similar path. Lots of states were legalizing gay marriage. Higher and higher fraction of the country was living in a state where gay marriage had been legalized. And some people argued that they didn't necessarily want the Supreme Court to rule that gay marriage had to be legal everywhere because they were nervous it would create a backlash. It would create the same kind of disharmony okay, that Roe v. Wade decision created and has still left us with you know, 40 years later. So did the Supreme Court make the right or the wrong decision? Or should it have made the decision knowing that it could have this polarization? Well, I would say that in that case, the Supreme Court's supposed to say what's in the Constitution. It's not supposed to think about the politics and decide what the backlash will or will not be. So I was totally comfortable with the fact that it made the decision it made and it forced gay marriage throughout the country. Is it possible that the path the success of gay marriage going forward would have been different or better had it happened state by state and somewhat more gradually over time? It does seem possible, consistent with the arguments I've made, but I do think the court was right to rule the way it did. Okay, reduced self-reliance, still another general category of negatives okay, you get from interventions. Lots of policies have the feel that they're saying people are too dumb to make decisions on their own. Okay? Now, it's of course true that some people make dumb decisions a lot of the time. Almost everybody makes a few dumb decisions some of the time. Okay? 
But if you try to have policy protect these people from themselves, it's hard to do that without discouraging self-reliance, personal responsibility, and so on. Again, let's think about some examples. Laws against false and misleading advertising. Okay, in and of themselves might not sound like such a horrible thing, but they do say that people are too dumb to figure things out for themselves. Famous case about advertising took place where a canner okay, in uh, Washington state put a label on the can that says, does not turn pink in the can. Okay, canned salmon, most of you know, looks pink. Okay, why does it look pink? Because the salmon flesh is pink. <laughs> for most varieties of salmon. But there's one variety of salmon that actually has white flesh, not pink flesh. So this one canner okay, was catching this one kind of salmon that had white flesh and putting it in the can and putting on the label, does not turn pink in the can. Okay? So that statement was true. <laughs> you could argue it was misleading. It was attempting to sucker the people who weren't thinking about it carefully. <laughs> Supreme Court real, ruled that that was false and misleading advertising. So maybe the Supreme Court interpreted the existing statute correctly, but to me, not letting people figure that out for themselves and not noticing that nobody was harmed by that label. If some people bought that can salmon just because they thought that other canners were causing the salmon to turn pink, who was harmed? What's the big deal? Except maybe the other salmon canners, but they could have done that for themselves by taking out their own advertising, explain the issue. Okay, so laws against false and misleading advertising have this feel of, dumbing people down, prohibiting bad stuff like drugs, okay, tells people they're too dumb to decide whether or not they can consume drugs, and it potentially misleads them about which are the really bad substances. It's true that use of some drugs can be bad under some circumstances, but so can alcohol, so can tobacco, so can you know, not saving enough for your retirement, so can not sending your kids to get a decent education, et cetera. So we're probably misleading a lot of people by telling them to focus so much on these particular bads when there's tons of other bads. Same exact thing with nutritional guidelines, which have changed enormously over the years. Okay? What was conventional wisdom in 1950 was radically thought to be stupid in 1960, was conventional wisdom again in 1970. Okay? Just making people into idiots and infants who read a news story in the newspaper all the time that says, oat bran will prevent colon cancer, okay, and go out and start doing nothing but eating you know, oat muffins, okay, not knowing there's no evidence that actually supports this thing, and turning people into sheep. Similar examples, regulating the decency content on television says that parents don't know enough to try to keep their kids away from that when it's appropriate. Okay? Child labor laws, again, compulsory education, parents and kids can't make reasonable decisions for themselves about whether they should work after school, whether they should stay in, in high school through age 14 or age 16 or age 18, or things like that. Social Security takes the position that people are not going to save their retirement, that they can't figure that out and won't do it on their own. Uh, safety regulation occupations, as we discussed, food labeling laws, licensing restrictions in medicine, say that people can't figure out who the responsible doctors or lawyers are without the government engaging in this licensure. And of course, there's plenty of evidence that the licensure doesn't keep out okay, the bad doctors. Okay? It keeps out all sorts of doctors and just raises the price. So it's not even effective at doing what it's supposed to do. Okay, next item, next general feature of interventions. And this is the one where I lose my sort of reasonably sort of libertarian-leaning but sort of lefty friends, okay, is to say that government interventions are th about thought control. Okay? And I mean it in a fairly specific way. All interventions 
take a stand on some aspect of what's true. Okay? If you fund education, you're asserting that the amount of education people choose on their own is not enough, that they're not making good decisions. You assert that the private sector won't do enough research. Those things might be true, but you don't know that they're true, and by getting into that business, government is insisting that that is the truth and tilting what people are going to believe to be true. By engaging in economic regulation like antitrust, you're taking a stand on the way markets work and making that the official view of the way markets work, rather than being agnostic and saying, we as the government don't know whether markets are relatively monopolized or relatively competitive. Taxing corporations takes the view that you can tax something with which you cannot shake hands. That's false. Okay? Corporations don't exist as independent persons. Corporations are owned by people. When you tax corporations, you're taxing people. And yet, we've created this fiction, which is convenient for politicians who want to try to raise more tax revenue. They say, oh, we'll just tax the corporations, and so people won't actually have to pay for it. Okay? That's a fundamental lie, but that's promoted by having a corporation income tax. Redistributing an income is taking a stand on what's equitable and what's not. Who's a good person, who's a bad person? People are really rich, in this perspective, must be bad people because otherwise they couldn't have gotten that rich. So again, there's an element of thought control. Campaign finance regulation takes a stand on something that on an issue of truth as to whether money in politics is a good thing or a bad thing, okay, when nobody actually knows whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, yet by having that regulation, government has taken a position. Just to give an example, when my daughter was five or six years old, she heard me ranting about libertarian blather at some point okay, and said, but dad, if it weren't for, about schools in particular, she said, but dad, if it weren't for the public schools in Wellesley, I wouldn't be able to get an education. Okay, so that was like fundamentally evil, awful. And I don't mean she was evil, but the thought that had been implanted in her brain by the schools was evil, that only by their beneficence, the government's beneficence, was she able to get an education. Of course, there are a billion other ways she would have gotten an education had it not been for government schools. But government wants you to believe the idea that it's only because of government that people get an education. Okay? That's an example okay, of thought control. Okay? So you don't have to be thinking about 1984-style thought control, a TV that's in your room watching your every move, or some you know, futuristic thing that can actually know what you're thinking and you know, zap you if you're having you know, incorrect thoughts that don't support the government. Way before you get to that, all of these interventions are pushing people to believe in the beneficence of government, that government knows best, and, and things like that. Okay, that's thought control, and that's potentially scary. Okay, still one more aspect of why interventions are bad is that they almost inevitably expand too much. To say that the right amount of intervention is back to 1790, or to say there should be sort of no government except national defense and a few uh, police officers and judges, obviously sounds extreme to most people okay, outside this room and a few other places. And a reasonable way of thinking about that might be to say, look, markets are not perfect. Externalities exist. Public goods exist. So maybe there are lots of examples where a small amount of intervention makes sense. Maybe subsidizing education a little bit. Maybe having government try to relieve poverty a little bit, maybe modest economic regulation aimed at the sort of worst possible abuses and things like that does make sense. Okay? So that's certainly a defensible perspective that we don't need as much government, but we do need a little bit more government than the sort of hardcore libertarian view. The problem is that small interventions don't stay small. Okay? Why? Well, all entities, individuals, organizations, governments, 
They want to exist. How do you continue to exist? S mainly by getting bigger, by growing in size and scope, by making your presence seem inevitable, by having enough political influence to oppose attempts uh, to shrink you down. So reasonable interventions, okay, modest environmental interventions attempting to uh, eliminate sort of noxious fumes from manufacturing plants and so on, as possible example, modest interventions don't say small, they become much more than originally intended. So one example might be the Civil Rights Act. Virtually every libertarian, I assume, thinks that the goals of the Civil Rights Act to have less, no discrimination in employment, in housing, in, in education, and so on, were noble goals, but we're concerned that attempting to achieve that through a federal law might have unintended consequences as the law expanded and grew beyond okay, its stated goals and aims. And indeed, we've gone, for example, from having the Civil Rights Act okay, try to outlaw discrimination in employment to the Civil Rights Act saying that you name it, university has to have just as many female athletes as male athletes. That's not what the marches on Washington were about in 1964. It's much harder to see why it's important that a particular college has to have you know, uh, a women's soccer team has the same issues as civil rights. So it's expanded well beyond okay, its initial motivation. The Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in the early 1900s, I think 1906. And what it said was medicines and foods had to be labeled. That doesn't sound so bad. They just had to list the ingredients. And you look on the label of any candy bar or anything you buy in the grocery store now, and there's a little thing that lists the ingredients. Okay, so that imposed a little bit of cost directly. Okay, because the manufacturers had to figure out a way to put that information on the label. But that's pretty trivial. If the only bad thing the Pure Food and Drug Act did had been every piece of candy you know, has a label on it that gives the ingredients, you wouldn't care very much. But the Pure Food and Drug Act evolved into the Food and Drug Administration, okay, gradually became bigger, expanded. People said, we need to do more. We need to now preemptively keep bad drugs from getting on the market in the first place, and so on and so forth. And as we discussed earlier, the, the FDA may well be doing great harm in keeping good medicines off the market for extended periods. So again, whether you come out overall for or against, that program expanded enormously. Social Security, when it enacted, set the age of eligibility at 65. What, what was life expectancy in 1935? 63, okay. which means, again, whether you like Social Security overall or not, it wasn't doing very much at the time. It was mainly protecting a relatively small number of people against the quote-unquote misfortune of living too long, of outliving their earnings ability. And yet, life expectancies changed enormously. So now Social Security is providing a non-trivial period of decades, many cases, of relatively generous retirement security okay, for a huge fraction of the population. Again, it just grew way beyond its initial bounds. Medicare is a similar thing because of the changes in life expectancy. And of course, Medicare has generated large amounts of health care cost inflation, so it's now vastly more expensive than any forecast made at the time it was created. So it's grown uh, in a way no one could have predicted. Antitrust, at one point, was meant to be mainly about naked price fixing, about the most explicit anti-competitive acts okay, that firms engaged in. But it evolved because antitrust regulators and antitrust lawyers wanted more stuff to do. One of the things they did was sue Microsoft because it incorporated a spell checker into the word, proce uh, word uh, document processing system. 
At the time, that was thought to be extending their monopoly. At the time, I don't know, roughly half the room was too young to remember this, but half of it will remember. You didn't have spell checker embedded in Word. You bought a separate program that you put your documents through after you'd finished editing them to check the spelling. And then Microsoft came along with the obvious suggestion of, oh, we're just going to embed it in Word. They were sued by the antitrust department for so doing. So antitrust is an example of something that's grown. Economic regulation, of course, much more generally. Infrastructure is a case where, of course, you can justify some government infrastructure. Building the interstate highway system may have been a thing that passed cost-benefit tests. But now, you cannot ever get away from the notion that we always need more infrastructure, that we always need more roads, better roads, and all sorts of silly, ridiculous infrastructure projects, like putting nice, allegedly pretty pink bricks is the crosswalks in like my town in Massachusetts instead of just painting a white line to indicate the crosswalks on the street. Okay, why do we have to put those bricks in there? Well, allegedly it beautifies the street. It also generates work for construction companies and construction unions. Okay, so again, the program doesn't stay small or moderate, it grows. Education is a classic example. When education started being a function of government in the 1900s, we're talking about relatively small amounts of education provided by cities and towns at a local level. Now we have states running huge educa uh, higher education systems, the federal government funding both higher education and intervening enormously um, in uh, all levels of K through 12 education. Okay, so gone through a bunch of those different categories. And the point is interventions have bad consequences, both failing to do what they were supposed to do, but second, having a big range of negative side effects, and not just one or two side effects, and not just a, sort of for random reasons, for systematic reasons. You can't intervene without tending to have these effects of uh, interfering with Pareto improving trade, with creating disrespect to the law, and so on and so forth. So that by itself should create a strong presumption against all these interventions. To talk about any specific policy, we'd have to go to the details of that policy. Now we're going to shift to the other issue. People can agree on consequences. So let's imagine that people are in reasonable agreement on these consequences, yet they still might differ as to whether some of these make sense because they disagree on the values that we should attach to the different consequences, or they disagree about what society's policy decisions should be based on. So we'll now look at that directly. So as I said, you can think of three different possible goals. One goal that's sort of standard in economics textbooks is something like maximize the amount of output produced per unit of inputs. It's often referred to as productivity or efficiency. You could talk about it as income per unit of inputs. You could talk about it as consumption uh, per capita, but something that just is a narrow measure of how productive the economy is. Okay? A second possible goal would be liberty or freedom. Lots of different definitions that you'll discuss as you go through Cato U and beyond, but for today, for right now, we'll just think of it as minimal interference. The government doesn't get in your way okay, any more than absolutely uh, necessary. And third, you could think an objective of policy should be to promote some definition of equity, fairness, morality, justice, or something like that. Okay? So what are the implications of each of these for what kind and degree of intervention we should have? So the first part I'm going to do really quickly, it's basically all assertion, and I'll leave you all with a challenge. My view is that to a first approximation, and maybe even more than that, efficiency, promoting efficiency and promoting liberty or freedom are the same. I can't think okay, of 
good examples where the two are in opposition. Okay? Interventions do two things. They generate bad consequences. Those are inefficiencies. And they also interfere with individual liberty. Okay? So it's hard to imagine there are policies okay, that are pro-efficiency but anti-liberty or vice versa. I've, I've made this challenge to every Cato U audience for four years. So far, no one is giving me a, an example of a counterexample to my assertion. But if you think of one, you know, please raise it. So I think these are just different languages for the same goals. Okay, and so we don't need to argue about that. Now, efficiency versus equity. The standard view is that policy faces a trade-off. We can have a more efficient economy, but it comes at the cost of having a less equitable economy. Okay? And that's especially because the people who are talking about this are almost always talking about equity as meaning an equal or a more equal distribution of income. Okay? And the standard view is, if you tax and redistribute more, that's more equitable because you can redistribute those revenues from richer to poor, but that will make your economy less efficient because the high tax rates tend to discourage economic activity. So this view that there's this trade-off okay, says that we should be redistributing from rich to poor okay, and that that implies that we have to accept the somewhat smaller pie in order to have an equally divided pie, a justly or a fairly divided pie. Okay, so I want to talk about that issue, equity versus efficiency, equity versus liberty, take your pick, from, with respect to two kinds of policies. The first are those policies that are explicitly aimed at redistributing income, okay? Social Security, Medicare, welfare, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, housing subsidies, things like that. Those policies' stated goals are to redistribute, okay? They're trying to transfer resources to particular groups, such as the elderly, or such as the poor, or people who don't have health insurance, people who are disabled, or whatever. Okay? Then there's a whole set of other policies whose stated goals have nothing to do with redistribution, but which might affect the distribution of income in some way, okay? and I'll talk about those separately. So we're going to look at data in a moment, but it's before that useful to think about why exactly are we supposed to be worried about redistribution? What are the arguments for why government should be in the redistribution at all? Okay, now, very, very few people okay, these days challenge that issue or ask that question and, and say, maybe we shouldn't do this in the first place. But let's think about that. One assumption a lot of you are familiar with is the utilitarian framework that says people get happiness from having more wealth, but at a decreasing rate. If we take $100 and transfer it from Bill Gates to someone who's homeless, Will Bill Gates have a few, somewhat fewer utils? Will he be slightly less happy? Yes, but by some infinitesimal amount because he has $100 billion. He won't even notice the $100 missing. And if we transfer that to the, the homeless person, that homeless person will gain some utils by having more wealth, and that will be more significant because the homeless person can now buy food for a week or a month or whatever. Okay? So that says that if we make this transfer, the total number of utils in the world goes up because the number that Bill Gates loses is much less than the number, the amount that the homeless person gains. So that's a sort of interesting, logically consistent story, but it's all assumption. It assumes that Bill Gates and the homeless person have the same utility function. It assumes that we can measure utility, and economics actually doesn't accept any of that. So I'm not going to talk about that assumption anymore. It's, it's completely unpersuasive, uncompelling justification for redistribution. A somewhat better justification for why government should redistribute, 
And again, for the moment, we're talking about why government should redistribute. Of course, libertarians have no objection if individuals want to redistribute voluntarily to other people. But for government redistribution, one view is we should, everybody has a demand for compassion. Everybody would like to live in a world where there aren't very many people starving or, or out on the street. Everybody would like to live in a world in which very few children starve or suffer or don't have reasonable health care or things like that. But left to their own devices, many people wouldn't do much private charity because they would free ride on the charitable efforts of others. They would say, look, I could give money to my local church or synagogue. I could give money to the Red Cross or whatever. But why should I do that? I'll just let the next person do that. But then if everybody thinks that way, then there's relatively little donation to these charitable activities, to private charity. And so there's not as much redistribution as everybody would like if they could somehow coordinate and all do some moderate amount, some non-trivial amount. Okay? So that's requires some assumptions. That's a particular model of the way the world works. Um, but it has the virtue that it's amenable to evidence. We can check some of the assumptions that I just made to outline that argument for redistribution. I'll come back to that in a moment. Still a third argument, and this is probably the most uh, common argument, the most probably maybe the most convincing argument, is the veil of ignorance argument, which says that when you're born, or just before you're born, you don't know whether you're going to end up being smart or not so smart, really skilled or not skilled, athletic or not, talented or not. Okay, you don't know whether you're going to be born into a rich country or a poor country, okay, into a group that gets discriminated against or not, into you know, born to the Rockefellers or someone else. Okay? So behind that veil of ignorance, would you want there to be in place a social safety net that protects you in case you happen to end up at the low end of the distribution? Would you be willing to accept that your total amount of income available, your consumption over your lifetime, is going to be a little bit lower because you're going to pay that in to this common pool to the government, which is going to retransfer it to those people who are unlucky enough that they end up having very low incomes? And the assumption is that behind that veil, most people would vote in favor of that plan. It's a form of insurance. Okay? And of course, lots of people completely voluntarily, buy insurance like that all the time. They engage in actions which cost them something for sure now to protect themselves against the possibility that something they don't like might happen that would be really bad with the insurance. That really bad outcome isn't really bad. It's only a little bit bad. Okay? So again, that view is interesting. It's based on some assumptions. But it's, again, amenable to the evidence. We can look at whether there's a lot of private charity that occurs, and therefore this government redistribution to protect people who are unlucky maybe is not that necessary. We can look at whether government redistribution is actually effective at helping people who have low income, and we look at the costs of the redistribution. Okay? So here's some evidence. This shows us government spending on the three big categories, defense, social security, uh, sorry, defense in blue, social security in red, and then Medicare in the sort of gray and interest, which annoyingly is getting larger and larger, interest is in the uh, yellow. What you can see is that defense is a fraction of government spending, uh, sorry, a fraction of GDP has come way down over the post-war period. Okay? And these major components of government redistribution, Social Security and Medicare, have gone way up. So that just says, whatever you think the right amount of government redistribution is, we're doing a lot already, and we've moved strongly in the direction of spending much, much more on redistribution and less on other stuff. So 
if people tell you that we're like this incredibly selfish society that has no social safety net and that Europe is much, much, much better, well, maybe they're more, they are more, and maybe that's better, but the US has a social safety net. It's significant, and it's been growing okay, over the post-war period. Okay? This just shows you exactly the same thing, but focused on the post-war period, so you can see it a little bit more clearly. Okay? So government is already redistributing a lot in the US and elsewhere. So that's one fact to sort of keep in mind. Second, okay, this is the volunteer rate in the US over the past 15, 20 years or so. Okay? 25 or so, 25 to 30% of the population every year volunteers in some way. That doesn't sound like a society in which no one contributes to private charity or tries to help other people. That sounds like a society in which there's plenty of private charity despite the fact that there's already all this government redistribution going on. This picture makes a similar point, despite the fact that Social Security redistribution has gone way up and that Medicare has gone way up. There's plenty of private philanthropy in the US. The blue line is the private philanthropy. And that, if anything, has been increasing, even though you might think that it would tend to be crowded out by the government redistribution. People would say, gee, now that the government is helping poor people and other people, I don't have to do it as much. Nevertheless, the private sector in the US and elsewhere is still doing it. Okay, and doing it increasingly. So that says that this assumption that people will all free ride, that they won't engage in charitable acts on their own, is not obviously right. There seems to be a lot of exception to that. There's a pretty healthy safety net other than the government safety net uh, in the United States. Okay. This shows us okay, how effective government anti-poverty spending is. The red line is the US poverty rate. You can see it does come down between about 60 and 1970, and has basically flat since then, despite the fact that over that period, anti-poverty spending, that's the blue line, okay, goes up enormously. It's, uh, that's probably, I believe, is per capita. Yes, per capita anti-poverty spending. So if, anti if government is good at helping reduce poverty, we should have seen something very different. In fact, we see basically no effect of the increase in government anti-poverty spending in actually reducing poverty. Okay? So government doesn't seem to be so effective at this particular job. Finally, this shows you uh, the log of income in eight countries over a very long period. It goes back to 1820 in the case of the UK. And what you should expect from basic economics, if you have a bunch of countries which start out at very different levels, and then they're all sort of growing over time as they build capital and add people and have technological progress, is that their per capita income should converge because the ones that are behind okay, can catch up. They can take advantage of the technologies available from other countries. They can be the ones that add factories and add tractors and add capital much more than the ones that are at the, at the head of the pack. And so you'd expect convergence. And in fact, you absolutely see convergence of that picture leading up to World War II. Then World War II messes everything up. Okay, for understandable reasons. So there's this huge dispersion. But then you see this enormous convergence occur again until about 20 years ago. And 20 to 30 years ago is when most of the countries of Europe started having much more aggressive social welfare policies and much heavier taxes. And so that precisely says that the attempt to redistribute, okay, to have these very generous safety nets, has a cost. Okay? And the cost is seen in the fact that all these countries seem to be persistently lagging behind the US in terms of their per capita income. Okay? So the point is, you can make rational arguments for government redistribution, but those arguments are, are amenable to evidence. 
and the evidence isn't very supportive. Now let me talk about all the other policies that interact with redistribution. Okay? These are policies that are not aiming to redistrib redistribute, but they do so anyway, and usually inequitably. Why does this happen? Because interventions create winners and losers, some intended, but many not. And intervention encourages people to want to become one of the winners, that is, to sort of earn rents. So what are examples of all these things? Okay. So government construction projects okay, are going to redistribute in an arbitrary way because some people, some companies get those contracts and others don't. If the government is going to do airport security, it's going to order scanner machines for the entire country from one company, okay, which means that company gets really rich compared to all the other companies that could have done that. And indeed, that company will then come back in a few years and say, you know what, that scanner we sold you, that was pretty good, but we have a much better one. You should now get rid of all those scanners and buy completely new scanners for the whole country. So they get rich all over again. So that's an arbitrary redistribution. Those are differences in income that result from big government, from bad government. Clean air rules beneficially affect some manufacturing plants and not others. Medicare reimbursement okay, means that some company gets rich processing all those reimbursements. High-stake testing means that companies who sell those tests make lots of money. Same with Just Say No campaigns. State universities run tuition policies that are not based on income, which means if you're Bill Gates and want to send your kids to the University of Washington, you get the same tuition discount as anybody else. Okay, that's a crazy way to redistribute income. Uh, so let me skip over uh, regulation for sake of time. Licensing restrictions are a super evil way of affecting the distribution of income unintended. Why? Take medicine. We keep people from practicing as doctors, okay? So that raises the cost of healthcare, okay? That provides extra income to those people who manage to become doctors. They get higher wages because of the barrier to entry, because of the restriction. And people who are low and moderate income are especially hurt because they have to now pay higher prices for medical care. So we're adversely affecting the distribution of income that way. And there are many, many other examples. The crucial point is there's tons of ways in which policies change the distribution of income. The uh, state of Massachusetts subsidizing a stadium for the Patriots meant that Tom Brady got to be mega, mega rich instead of just mega rich based on his talents because the Massachusetts taxpayers were funding that stadium. These are all crazy things for the government to do. And these are the kinds of effects on the distribution of income that people should be upset about, not the ones, not differences in income per se. So when we think about intervention in equity, the point is that even if you accept the goal of flattening the distribution of income, first, the policy has real cost. It reduces output, effort, so on. And there's very limited evidence for the effectiveness of the government redistribution policies. At the same time, there's lots of scope to have a more equitable distribution of income by eliminating those interventions which reward birth or connections or dishonesty or luck Okay, and which don't make sense in the first place, such as barriers to entry and practicing medicine and things like that. So equity is still another argument for small government because it avoids all these unwarranted distributions okay, rather than promoting all of these bad outcomes, all of these inequitable differences in income that come from policy as opposed to simply from market forces. Now, last graph and almost last slide okay, is shows you the world's income per person from BC 1000 okay, to the present. Okay. 
You might be curious to know how anybody has data on the world GDP in BC 1000. Uh, it turns out the trick is until about this point here, the assumption is that it's the same as population. Based on auxiliary things, people have, historians have concluded that there was no productivity growth, so the amount of output was essentially the same as the number of people, was proportional to the number of people until you had real productivity growth starting in the 1800s. Who knows? <laughs> but taking the graph uh, as given, it shows what happens to two sets of countries starting around 1800, 1850. And you see some where income per capita you know, just goes through the roof, grows enormously, and others where it actually continues to decline. And the two groups correspond extremely tightly to those that adopted freedom policies, pro-market policies, capitalist policies, UK, Western Europe, United States, and so on, versus uh, countries that adopted heavy government restrictive policies, Soviet Union, China, many countries in Latin America, at times countries in Africa, and so on. So this says that what's really mattered to world well-being, material well-being, okay, is having capitalism. And that affects, if you really, really want to make the distribution much more equal, to have all the command and control from communist China or the Soviet Union or whoever, if you want income back at this level, okay, well, you can choose. You can say that. That would at least be logically consistent. But that's the price that you're paying for wanting to have all these policies which try to make the distribution of income more just. You're paying an enormous cost. OK, so summing up on libertarian land. To many people, not in this room, but outside this room, libertarian land sounds bizarre. They assume it would be chaotic, it would be violent and disease infested, that it would be rich elites living off the poor. Okay? Consequential libertarianism predicts otherwise. And I've tried to suggest to outline that lots and lots of evidence supports this view that, in fact, if we adopt the small government policies that many countries have been living under since you know, the 1800s, roughly, um, we would have the miracle that we saw from the growth in the previous graph, and that we would have, in fact, a very different society than our critics uh, portray. So my bottom line is simple. Small government is not perfect. Lots of bad things happen under small government. Okay, but small government is much better than the alternative because lots and lots of the bad things are the result of government. So we can reduce those by going to libertarian land rather than the current mess. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? Hi. Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Angel, and I'm Professor Meyer, and I have a two-part question for you, if that's OK. Um, so I study engineering, and I can sometimes see where um, economics takes inspiration from. So I would like to um, ask about government intervention and mathematical economics. Um, by mathematical economics, I mean applied methods beyond simple arithmetic and simple geometry, such as um, intrigue integral calculus, finite differences, differential equations, things question. like that. You need a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so um, they seem to promote the view that um, the um, market phenomena is mathematically tractable and um, an optimal solution can be found. So I was wondering if the branch of mathematical economics promote the agenda of government intervention because... Uh, so that's a very common question. It's an interesting point. There's certainly a view that modern economics as it became more mathematical and used standard statistical te techniques and so on, 
created this false air of certainty. It made it seem as though we could write things down in a simple model, we could work it all out, and then we could do exactly what the equations and the statistics told us, and uh, that that was a problem. I don't think that mathematics was the main problem. I think arrogance was the main problem. Okay? I think that not having humility to realize that anything you try to do on a large scale, anytime you try to interfere with other people's lives, okay, all sorts of bad things can tend to happen. Most people should recognize they're not very good at running their own lives. So the assumption that they can do that for anyone else, let alone I mean, their kids, their spouses, and certainly not people they've never met in other parts of the world or the country, is just sort of crazy. Okay. <laughs> I think I should switch around. Yeah. You can come back if there are okay. any So uh, I have a two-part question as well, but it's a little shorter. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to be giving a speech on the inefficacy of gun control to a virulently leftist crowd at my college soon. I really like that, that, uh, that graph that you had. Uh, first off, where did you get that graph? And second, uh, what other tips would you tell somebody who's going to talk about this subject? I constructed the graph so I could send you the slide and the data sources and you can check fantastic. it and extend it. Um, I think you try to show people who are skeptical that at least the strong claims about violence coming from wider use of guns is not supported by the evidence. There's a National Academy of Sciences report from maybe 15 years ago that looked at the evidence on gun control and violence and suicides and other outcomes, and it basically said there was no evidence to support the claim that uh, these controls were being effective. Um, I think you have to argue that while the controls sound reasonable, they are unlikely to actually have the effects that they're alleged to have. You can say have a three-day weeding period. That doesn't sound so terrible. Anybody with a legitimate use for a gun probably is not a big deal to wait three days, but it's not going to stop people who want to do serious violent things to, to have to wait three days in order to get the appropriate gun. So, uh, but you're going to lose. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a foregone conclusion. <laughs> you're you're, 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 you're going to have a tough crowd. <laughs> Yes. yes, Jeff. Uh, I want to make a, a personal observation or a confession, I should say, and, and see how you would respond. Um, these are former associates who I'm not involved with, but these associates of mine, we could separate people from their money, even educated people. Um, and not everything, but some of what you say here is going to make it so much easier for these associates. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, it's a little nonspecific. Are you saying that if you're a financial advisor, you can con a lot of people into letting you manage their money and charge them exorbitant fees? Let me and say stuff? I'm speaking strictly in the finance area. I won't say where, but you're, you're close. So I would say that first... <clears throat> um, uh, There's nothing we can do to prevent fools from being parted with their money. Thanks. Second, um, that in a world in which you get the impression that the government is protecting you from uh, schemers and carn artists and people who are making excessively competent promises about the management of your portfolio, you're going to be less careful. Let's say you live in a world where there are no bans on insider trading, there's no SEC, and it's, you think it's the Wild West. That should incentivize, I don't know for sure it will work, but it should incentivize many more people okay, to say, to heck with that, I'm investing in index funds. And if it doesn't, tough. Uh, you're going to provide a lot of money for a lot of people. You know. I, 
of all the problems in the world, the fact that people who are wealth to do are going to stupidly pay two and 20 to some hedge fund, I just, I don't care. <laughs> I don't think policy should care. I'm going to vote for you, Yeah, you'll be the only one. <laughs> I have a sort of relevant question. Um, do you believe a contract entered in under false pretenses is still, um, I don't know, an equal and mutually um, agreeable contract? And if not, how do you reconcile that with your belief to remove OSHA and labeling laws and child labor laws and licensing, licensing laws? Okay, so that's an interesting question. So if government, libertarians would tend to think the government should be in the business of enforcing some contracts because We'll just be efficient. If people know that their contracts are going to be enforced in a reasonable way, they will enter into standard business arrangements, they'll invest, blah, blah, blah. Okay? But the government certainly is entitled to impose some rules as to which contracts it's going to enforce, and governments do. They don't enforce contracts between minors. If your two, like, eight-year-olds make a bet on something or agree that one's going to mow the lawn for the other and then one reneges, you can't go to court over that. Okay? Um, gambling debts are not enforceable at law, and so on and so forth. Um, should you enforce a contract entered into false pretenses? Well, for I, example, if you had an unlicensed doctor who says he can be a doctor and then ends up botching an operation, is that still a mutually beneficial agreement? Because it was a, it was I, a contract. I would, I would tend to think that's a contract that governments might want to enforce because that's not much different than any standard sort of business contract. There was a representation made about what this person could provide and sell to you, and it was false, and so if it's not delivered under standard contract law. And I don't think that conflicts with anything about OSHA and all that, because there were no contractual relations there. If, OSHA, if an employer says, I'm hiring you at this low wage to do this really dangerous job, but if you fall, I'll catch you, and he doesn't catch you, then he's liable. Do you think it's worth the risk? That's not, I hate heights, so I know I don't think it's worth the risk. <laughs> but that's not for me to say for anybody else. That's for the other people to say. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so my question kind of joins the two last ones. Uh, like, uh, you seem to, in your talks, you seem to really think that a consumer should be responsible and is uh, finally should be the last authority to choose. Uh, and there should, there should not be regulations forcing him into, into the choice. Uh, now, um, a, a lot of, uh, the main objection that I hear about this is information asymmetry. And the, my question is, should government in any way be involved in reducing information asymmetry? So my short answer is no, because in the attempt to try to make the information clearer and more transparent, government's almost inevitably going to make it less clear and less transparent. Think about sort of all the financial stuff where your credit card now comes with this folded up page. It's like 20 volumes, but been printed in this teeny, teeny, teeny little type so they can get it small enough to fit in the envelope. Like all these caveats and all these protections, you, you know, that's ridiculous. That's just nobody can read that and process that and pay attention to it. And making the world more complex okay, is not going to help people who are not especially sophisticated. Having very few rules and private institutions which tell people, if you need help applying for a mortgage loan, come talk to us. There are lots of organizations like that. AAA, if you want to buy auto insurance for someone who's not trying to scam you, go to AAA. It's a nonprofit, and it's, it's trying to help its customers. So private mechanisms will do a huge amount to address those sorts of issues. In the case, if there's a private monopoly that kind of forces us to have no choice, maybe because of patents or maybe That's right. because of... That's right. If the government's in charge of the information, you only have one source. There's no way to check whether it's accurate or
Yes. Um, yeah, so kind of the same thing with that. Um, the IRS, do you think the IRS um, is sort of effective in what it does? Because there's a lot of com complex, you know, things that goes inside um, the tax structure. And um, if you even call up the IRS and ask what I'm missing, they won't answer that question. And uh, my question is whether or not the IRS is effective. And if not, um, should it still be there? So what do we mean by effective for the IRS? Do we mean collecting the maximum revenue it can, given the existing laws? I don't know if it's effective by that definition. Is it effective at making people happy to deal with the IRS? No, not, not especially. But I think it's a mistake to focus too much on the IRS or even on the tax side. I think the only way we'll end up with a lower and more rational tax system is if we reduce the expenditure. Because as long as you're trying to spend a lot of money and not have a humongous, humongous exploding debt, you have to raise a lot of tax revenue. That means you have to have high rates. That means there's incentive for people to want to create all these carve-outs and credits and deductions and stuff to avoid the high rates. So the solution is, the problem is, cut the expenditure. But nobody wants to talk about that because most of the expenditure is Medicare. And everybody alive is either getting Medicare or hopes to get Medicare. So how do you get a program which, other than you know, the 200 people in this room, everybody in the country is going to vote for? for Medicare. I've heard uh, Scott Rasmussen is a well-known pollster. He told me that he can phrase questions in such a way that he can get people to support almost any, by significant majorities, almost any libertarian position, okay, except Medicare, except on Medicare. <laughs> so it's a huge problem because that's where the expenditure is. And until we cut expenditure, we're not going to have a better tax code. Thank you. Yes. Sure. I want to ask about. Um, the welfare state and a democratic society. Because you know, based on the presentation, it seems you know, whatever rational value system we have, um, uh, something like the welfare state uh, in its current iteration really wouldn't be justified. And I think that there's a pretty easy explanation on the other hand for, say, economic regulation in terms of why it happens when it isn't uh, broadly valuable and the, you know, the concentrated uh, benefits diffuse costs. It seems at least there are some of our major welfare programs that affect large swaths of the population are a bit better known. That explanation has a little bit less power. So I just wanted, you know, asking if you could maybe think through the issue of the current welfare state and how we have it, um, given, uh, you know, given it's you know, less than optimal results. Is it just people uh, being overly optimistic, or is it something more inherent to politics? I, short answer. It serves the interests of politicians to have everybody believe that they're getting a lot of things from the government. Now, in fact, they're on net not, on average, getting things from the government. They're paying for them themselves, and then they're coming back you know, with a haircut from the government. Um, it's hard to get rid of things once they exist, because there are going to be some losers who get less than they thought they were going to get. And especially if you are close to retirement or in retirement, of course you're going to oppose cuts in your particular programs. Beyond that. My, my instincts on political economy as opposed to economics are, not, are no better than anybody else's. I have nothing. So I don't know what else to say. Yeah, thanks. I uh, think it's just an interesting question. It's a tough question. That. And it's tough, it's tough to make changes. So I think we probably, I'm happy to talk to you after, but I think, I think we're done. OK. Thank you very much.